Karen Pincus is a professor of Italian and comparative literature at Cornell University. She is a minor graduate field member in studio art and a faculty fellow of the Atkinson Center for a Sustainable Future. For more than a decade, Karen has been working between Italian studies and environmental humanities with a focus on climate change. Karen Pincus, welcome to the creative process in One Planet. Thank you so much for having me. You're focused on the humanities and Italian uh, literature, comparative literature, but you also focus a lot now on uh, climate change and sustainability, and you're going to read from your forthcoming book. That's right. I have a new book forthcoming, which is about the subsurface in the time of climate change. So I'll read a little bit from it uh, before we start talking. It's from the introduction where I talk about why I'm writing about the subsurface and why I'm moving between geology and literature. Today, in the time of climate change, in an attempt to achieve some sense of mastery over chaos, we may aspire to carve out clear divisions between the subsurface, the place of fossil resources to be extracted, but also of sinks, of possible burial of carbon or waste, the surface, our home, and the atmosphere, the place of the accumulation of invisible greenhouse gases. Now, an earth scientist might specialize in atmosphere, hydrosphere, lithosphere, or biosphere, but even amateurs might imagine these three primary realms with solid lines or fill them in with different colors as in a child's drawing. However, we should also recognize the naivete of such representations and the possibility that subsurface, surface, and atmosphere interpenetrate one another precisely as systems. But if we wish to remain more intuitive, we can simply say that humans, animals, some companion, some virus spreading, some ingestible protein, and plants, increasingly studied for their spirituality, communalism, and complexity, live on the surface, surrounded by other living and non-living entities. The surface is the place of our dwelling, of property boundaries, consumption of goods. It is also the place of the combustion of fossil fuels, an activity which, as we know, led to, quote unquote, unintended consequences in the atmosphere. In short, the surface is the place of life itself, or to paraphrase the father of modern geology, James Hutton, 1726 to 1797, on the surface, the inert matter of the subsurface is replaced with plant, animal, and intellectual beings. The surface, we might argue, is the rightful place of the anthropos, even as we have devised considerable fantasies about life in the other two realms. That our species attempts such mastery over the earth and sky should come as no surprise. We've messed up the planet, by which we traditionally mean the surface, so now our only hope is to store our detritus or engineer these other realms until such time as we can get our act together, and then perhaps we can unburden them, rewild them, or return them to their pristine states. That's one response. And perhaps this is no better than the idea of giving up, 
and colonizing or terraforming some virgin space off world. But we did not know. So can we really blame ourselves? And then which portions of that broad category Anthropos is primarily to blame? Humans now find ourselves on one side of an ever enlarging crevasse that is opening in the earth and dividing us from our former selves and others who existed, quote unquote, before climate change. And for my purposes, that is before circa 1990, when the idea became broadly and widely popularized. What began as a fracture only decades ago has now begun to pull apart so rapidly that we are fast losing sight of our former selves on the other side. In the very recent past, terms like emergency or extinction and now code red have come to be used to describe the present or near future. Public awareness was raised through Hollywood or independent films, documentaries, cli-fi, and events such as the COP meetings in Copenhagen, quote-unquote failure, and Paris, quote-unquote success, or through well-publicized disasters that scientists admitted were made much more likely in the time of rising greenhouse gas concentrations, even if they prefer not to attribute direct cause to any single occurrence. There have been hundreds of academic conferences and publications, hundreds of conversations about the carbon footprint of such conferences. Awareness is supposed to lead to action, but by whom and for what end? One might call awareness for its own sake, bad faith or bad politics or naive hope. The violent rupture within ourselves, depending on our age and with a very recent past is one of the central ideas behind this book which moves between texts and proposals from the present and primarily literary narratives written in the 19th century when coal was the dominant source of fuel in Europe and North America, but before the discovery of oil. Reading before, we might have suspected that capitalism would lead to pollution and devastation of the natural world, but we, here I mean readers, would not have been expected to think about or with the fracture about living in a world after climate change. Of course, one might choose not to think or pretend to not know, yet even presumed knowledge could make one guilty or liable. Yes, I mean, it's really so important that we examine, we you know what we're doing and you've done that also in your previous book, Fuel, you know, we don't think about it. We think about the energy that we use, and uh, but we just really aren't examining what's on the surface or, or beneath the surface. And yeah, it's so important for that we examine. Is We're in the midst of all this. We just use I th the real problem, and I'm sure you've been examining it so much, is that we live beyond our limits. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I, I'm sure you have as well. Uh, when we look at the natural world which even someone was saying that's that ish that phrase is contentious as well there's no such thing as the natural anymore but if you observe animals their fuel is just what they need they don't need to rely on this so anyway what was the desire behind writing this book i sort of learned about climate change maybe about i think it's been about 17 years now because as as you mentioned i'm a literature professor 
And I became immediately fascinated by it. I started working on it, but it was very early days for anybody in the humanities to be working on it. So I've had kind of a, you know, nearly two decade long career working in the field, and I've seen it really change a lot in every way, both in the mainstream and the press, in public awareness and in academia. So I've sort of gone through an evolution myself, and I've seen the world evolve around me. So I started working on fuel when I was at the University of Southern California. The provost there put together a grant called um, Future Fuels and Energy. And of course, part of fuels and energy is climate change, but this particular grant was focused on other things as well, such as scarcity and yeah, just, just di different issues that were not related to climate change per se, or that were peripheral to it. But the more I started hearing and learning about climate change, the more I became convinced that the, if you want to put it in quantitative terms, the, the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere and the parts per million were what was really important to think about. Everything else was sort of a distraction. So for many years, I wrote and taught and published about climate change from a more philosophical, existential point of view, especially thinking about deep time. But I did come back to fuels with my fuel book in part spurred the fact that so much of the press and so much of public discourse confuses fuel and energy, and it's still happening today. And it's, it's a bit frustrating to me, you know, because I feel like I've thought about this so long and it's the same themes, the same tropes are still being recycled. All we have to do is plug in a greener fuel we just need to get green fuels in there and everything will be fine. Everything will kind of be taken care of. So part of the purpose of the book was to deconstruct that idea and to really show that fuels are separate from energy. Fuels are inputs. There's substances that we insert into systems of energy. And I found that working with literature was a great way to think about that. But also, I put in all kinds of fuels into my book, not just real ones, not just fossil fuels or quote-unquote alternative fuels, but made-up fuels, utopian fuels, dystopian fuels, items that people have proposed in the past that never really went anywhere. So the book is meant to help people think, and I have heard from a lot of people that it's a a book that makes you really think about some fundamental assumptions that we have about fuels and energy. And of course, climate change is this overarching problem and the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. But it's not the only thing the book is about. At the same time, as I said, we keep hearing about these future fuels that are going to come and save us. So that's also been um, some recent work I've done. I do want to mention, I wrote an essay for a catalog, which is accompanying an exhibit, which is opening this fall in Wolfsburg, um, Germany, called Oil, Beauty, and Horror in the Petrol Age. And uh, for that, I, I have a catalog essay called Future Fuels. So again, I'm thinking about this question of what we mean when we say future fuels and when is the future and when is this future going to come and save us and all of these issues that are around that. At the same time, my new book 
is much more about the questions of this crevasse that I mentioned, this divide, which is changing, fundamentally changing life, including, say, the way we would read literary texts from the past. Yes, and really rethinking this, it's not just a question of replacing the fuels. I think that it's about maybe living within limits or really, really be truly being sustainable, not just the fuel, but just like using less energy, using what, you know, traveling less, consuming less meat or not consuming meat. I mean, that whole, I I feel like if we learn from the natural world, they always are in balance with their ecosystem and and their one priority is that I think we really complicate it and it's weird for me to say because we have a podcast where we're talking talking listening listening but I feel like if you told animals if they when they know and they do have an existential threat that's all they work on that's all it's just and that would be all that they would focus on it wouldn't be like talking it wouldn't be entertaining themselves so yeah I feel it's like that it's that it's that critical of a mindset change I mean I there you can't argue against what you just said at the same time I think there's a real danger in addressing climate change through this angle of sort of the consumer and individual responsibility and sustainability Again, these are all things that I completely, you know, no, no one can disagree with them in there. No rational person can disagree with what you just said. But clearly, the model of individual responses and consumerism is completely inadequate to deal with the problem. And yet, it's the model that gets perpetuated in mainstream discourse, in the press, as you both know, clearly, as listeners will know, this is being recorded on August 16th. And within the past week, the IPCC report came out and the press widely reported on the report. And almost every news story I saw on television or even in print media asked some expert, usually a scientist, what can we do? And so we are caught in a dilemma. We can't dismiss the idea of individual responsibility. And the the way you put it is is very beautiful and very moving, I think, which is that we are animals and we should behave like other species of animals on the planet, on the surface that we share with them. At the same time, we are consumers. And that model seems so pervasive. It's, It's so impossible to get outside of it. And I find it just really intellectually bankrupt and also so problematic in terms of really addressing the gravity of the situation. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I actually would never want to say that it's all our responsibility. I think that that's just like a frustration and particularly among young people who can say that they're not responsible, that they're part of the system. It's just that they we know that we have to put pressure as consumers or whatever, voters or whatever. But yeah, looking to animals, they're much more collectivist and they don't think that it's, you know, just their individual. And I think that that's, that's the strength. I feel like we can learn so much and it's a truism. But, you know, I was just out outdoors uh, this weekend and there were all these birds in the sky and they were crying 
And I didn't know what it was. It sounded like it was like the end of the world, the way they were, you know, shouting, communicating to each other. I don't know what it was. And and I, I didn't know it was a storm coming or what, but I guess it's a, like a part of a migration. And mm-hmm. then the sky is full of birds. And then in a minute, they are able collectively, because they don't think only of themselves, they're communicating, I guess, making sure that everyone that they know is coming with them, and then they're gone. So from they can find the chaos, whatever it is, and then they, they are great organizers. So I feel like we can learn a lot from them. And I never want to say it's all our individual responsibility, because, of course, it's our governments and our organizations that act for us. But we do have to put pressure. This is absolutely lovely line of thinking and this human animal. Where is that line? Like we are animals, but also we're very much not at the same time, which is evidenced by this entire situation as it is now. Like I always go back to think of thinking about human imagination and how it's a very much double-edged sword and how human imagination got us to this place, right? Like we were able to imagine a world in which we didn't have to walk anywhere and we could use cars to get us places, we could use airplanes to get us places. And I feel like you're in a really good position to think about this as someone who's literature and also environmental humanities because you were talking about the geology, the lithosphere, the biosphere, and fantasy. And so I, I wanted to ask you, given our state as human beings and our capacity to imagine these worlds that aren't extant, that they don't exist, how do you think we can leverage fantasy at a time like this when climate change is accelerating and getting worse? If I knew the answer to that, we, we, you know, we'd be in a better situation. And unfortunately, there is a lot of what I would call bad faith futurology out there, which is just sort of like either cli-fi or even, you know, speculative fiction that imagines either a utopian or dystopian version of the future, which is pretty much like the present except with like some either some bad stuff has happened or there are fewer resources or we've come up with some, you know, technological fix. Um, And it's very hard to imagine something radically different. It requires us to take a huge risk. And we also risk being caught somehow out, out of the bounds of logic. So I feel like there's a pull always on on scholars, but also on on thinking human beings to behave in a rational way and to adhere to common sense. Mia, you mentioned, you know, governments or institutions, but even that's not clear which kinds of institutions should address climate change or can address it. All of this is to say that I'm becoming more and more convinced that if we want to act in good faith, we need to make some kinds of, let's say, revolutionary changes. And I don't say that in a kind of glib way, like, yeah, let's have a revolution. Wouldn't that be great? I would prefer that we didn't have to, you know, because revolutions could be unbelievably destabilizing. So the fantasy and imagination required to think about what we have to change is really far beyond our kind of comfort zones. And even if those comfort zones are narratives of dystopia, they're still comforting because they conform to the narratives that we're familiar with and they use language that we're familiar with. 
So what, what we probably need is something really outside of anything that would be comforting. And that is really frightening. But I think it's those actors who can muster that kind of imagination are the ones that inspire me. Yes, it is interesting as someone who I am an artist and writer, and I understand also how you have put your imagination and your you know, previous focus, although it continues to be a part of your process and your scholarship, but your previous focus to serve what we call the big questions, the existential questions now. And that seems to be, you know, it's unfortunate that artists or those working in the realm of imagination have today that we have to decide how can I use my skills to better serve? Because in fact, working in the realm of dreams, and I would say the arts and scholarship around it, is a service to mankind, you know, we need dreams. And yet we have to decide, is this, as you say, practically good? And what I ask myself, and I think a lot of us struggle with as well, is whether in some way our imaginations, and you had mentioned it also, Sophia, our imaginations, our creativity, which created these machines, or our imaginations that help us help distract us from the reality or imagine, you know, utopias where this didn't have to take place, you know, if in a way our imaginations helps to further increase the imbalance we have with the natural world. Hi, my name is Sophia Luongo, and I'm an associate podcast producer with the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. I'm a recent graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, where I studied anthropology, Italian studies, and museum studies, but I found that in each of these disciplines, I kept returning to questions of climate change and environmental justice. I relate very deeply to what Mia and Karen were saying about feeling a pressure to put our art or our work to the service of mitigating the effects of climate change. I think in a lot of ways that pressure has the power to exhaust us, and I want to be careful to avoid this because, like Karen said, If not for art, language, and culture, and the people part of it all, what are we working to save? I would like to share a poem that I wrote about how surprisingly difficult it can be to remember the fact that it is you, life on Earth, and everything that encompasses, and all the small things that we are trying to save, in addition to how personally unsustainable this work becomes when we forget that. It's titled, I'm Here to Help. I'm here to help has been my mission. When I'm alone with the world, I find comfort in strangers in the same world as me. A woman held my coffee for me at the bus stop. I didn't have the hands for everything I needed to do. And there's so much to do. She smiled and nodded. I got on the wrong bus, distracted by her small kindness. A pigeon with iridescent green and purple feathers gulped water out of the fountain like its life depended on it. My friend, you are in such a state that you do not taste the clear, cool water for all that it is. A man was playing an instrument I didn't recognize from somewhere far away. The music filled me so full that it hurt, and I wanted to tell him I understood, but I don't know if I did. They tell me the snail on my fourth floor window came from the potted plants on someone else's patio, but I don't understand how it got there to begin with. I wanted to tell it I loved it anyway, because I think I did but I still closed the window. I can protect you better from behind the glass, and I don't want you to get trapped inside. But if you do, it's okay, because I'm here, too. (laughs) 
you know, let's speak a little bit about the other side of your scholarship, which is comparative literature, Italian studies. And, you know, what drew you to, to that? And how do you feel the Italian language informs your imagination? And, and I'm just fascinated with this whole thing is how does uh, language shape our thoughts, our acts, and, you know, perception of the world and imagination? Well, French was my first language, and then I, I learned Italian. When I was in university, I wanted to be a playwright, and I worked a lot on theater, but also art history, some literature as well. I started out by doing a PhD, an interdisciplinary PhD in what was called Renaissance Studies. My early scholarship was on 16th century emblems. So really couldn't be further from what I'm doing now in a sense. And it was very removed from anything like the engaged humanities or the practical humanities, which are really coming to be very important and dominating now. You know, a lot of people's lives and careers are kind of random or path dependent. I just ended up spending, I, I had a Fulbright um, in Bologna, and I spent a year living in Italy, and I did archival research, but I wasn't very, very interested in archival research, or I don't think I was very good at it either. And when I came back from that trip, I, I just ended up, you know, teaching Italian language as a graduate student, and then I ended up getting a job in, in Italian. I've always been between Italian and comparative literature. I would say that just in terms of languages in general, I mean, especially if you are really, really immersed in a language to the point of, you know, bilingualism or, you know, Sophia, I think, talked about dreaming. I mean, if you dream in a foreign language, that's a very powerful thing for, for your brain. So I, for, for me personally, it's been really important. The pandemic has kept me away from Italy for the longest time in my adult life. And it's, it's very strange and very dis disruptive, you know, to not have being able to go there. All of this um, is important too, because at least I'm um, speaking in the U.S. context, which is the one I know the best, there's been a real shift. Well, enrollments in generally in foreign languages are down. Most universities have some kind of a foreign language requirement, but it's it's pretty minimal. And they often justify it as a kind in an instrumental way. Like if you learn a language, it will be good for doing business in a foreign country or for having some kind of cultural um, affiliation with a foreign country. Similarly, study abroad has become a way to sort of broaden your horizons, but also there are internships you can do in a foreign country so that you can perhaps, you know, find a career. And the idea that we have been talking about that learning a language could fundamentally shift the way that you think and maybe reshape your brain in some way has kind of gone out the window. And I'll, I'll confess, you know, that I'll use that instrumentalist language to help, you know, I've been in many struggles throughout my career in universities to keep the languages going and to keep language requirements open. And then also to encourage students to continue on in a language beyond whatever the requirement is. But sometimes it feels like a losing battle. So I do think when I think about addressing, say, climate change. It, it's not that, that different from saying 
learning a language so that you can fundamentally shape or scramble your brain and think differently so that you're not just doing something in order to get a job. And I realize that can sound very elitist, you know, because I do have a job and I teach at a prestigious university. But if you think about it from another perspective, if we don't think, if we don't read literature, if we don't think with literature, if we don't use our imaginations, if we don't learn another language and really immerse ourselves in it, I mean, what is it that we're saving when we think about saving humanity or saving um, cultures? Thank you. That, this is very, these are very <laughs> profound thoughts and ways to think about the world. And I, I completely agree when it comes to, I feel like from a European standard, I know basically no languages because I only speak English and Italian, but just knowing Italian outside of my native English, I've noticed how I'm able to think differently about things or not even able to, but more just happens without my realizing how it really shapes your world. And then you expand that to think about all the different languages all around the world and how everyone is thinking differently. I think that's, that's really, really important. So I wanted to ask you then with this understanding that you have within the environmental humanities, what are some of the core differences you've noticed understanding climate change through different languages? That's a really difficult question because on the one hand, you have the bureaucratic language of the IPCC. They're based in Bonn, Germany, as you know, but the language is, is English. I was very fortunate to be able to attend the COP in, in Paris and it was really a moving experience, but you know, still English was the, the language of, of the IPCC. It's the, you know, the language of of the UN, of the with French as well, you know, of the institution. And then you could say that there are literary languages that have addressed climate change, you know, in, in CLIFI. But I, I wouldn't really say that one language dominates, but it's it's all part of thinking differently. I have argued in some of my writing that we haven't found the proper language to really talk about what we're facing because all of our vocabulary and even our narratives are insufficient because this is so unprecedented. This is not a war. It's not a shift in governments or institutions. It's something so far beyond us in time and, and space. And I don't think we have the proper language. So, so rather than search for the proper language, what I'm doing in my work in progress is thinking about how we could find little cracks in narrative or little places where things fall apart or little minuscule fractures where logic ceases to prevail or language fails. And in that mode of thought, we could begin to address what we're facing. So not in like some grand new narrative or new language or new way of thinking, but within the tiny little cracks. And we get there by careful reading by close reading, you know, or theoretically informed reading. And I feel like this ties in so well to your work on the diacritics journal that you edit. And I know it's described as thinking about contradictions without solutions. And I feel <laughs> like when you have a contradiction without a solution, there's not necessarily a language you can use to 
find the solution because that's not even the goal. The, the whole goal sort of shifts. So what would you say is the most fruitful aspect of using this framework in the environmental humanities? I mean, that's a great question because a lot of environmental humanities, and again, I don't mean this as a criticism, you know, because I'm very supportive of this discipline, but a lot of it is sort of moving towards what I would say soft social sciences. So Diacritics is, is a longstanding journal of essentially literary criticism and theory. And a lot of people in environmental humanities might say, you know, literary theory was an elitist sort of European Francophile or started, you know, with French theory. It's elitist. It doesn't address anything practical. It's difficult for its own sake. These are all the same criticisms that were made of literary theory for, for decades now. So I'm not saying anything new. So a lot of people would say that's not really the, the right way to address environmental issues. And a lot of people are more interested in things like environmental racism, environmental justice, environmental ethics, giving people a voice that haven't had a voice. And again, who can argue against that? But I still think many of the authors who wrote for the terraforming issue that I co-edited with a wonderful young scholar called Derek Woods, they are very engaged with literary theory as a way of thinking about what terraforming really means and recognizing that people of color and the disenfranchised and the poor of the world are the ones who are suffering immediately and will suffer in the future and will have the most difficulty adapting. So I think you can do both, but it requires, yeah, imagination, but also a kind of generosity of spirit to think that, oh, I could actually think about these issues with literary theory and not everybody you know, is on board with that. And as I say, the field has a lot of elements of soft social science or engaged humanities, you know, people who are working with communities on issues of adaptation and so forth. And I want to defend the traditional humanities, which by which I mean, you know, say history. How can you think about the present and the future without having engaged with history? Uh, literature, art history, these the traditional humanities, not because I want to withdraw from the world today, but because those traditional disciplines require a, a kind of time and thought and engagement that I think we don't want to lose. But key, they require a lot of time and they require a lot of discipline and things are speeding up so much. And so how do we justify say, doing something like a PhD in the humanities, which takes years, you know, how do we justify that when we have less than eight years to make some huge transitions in order to stop warming beyond 1.5 degrees, if, if that's even possible? Yeah, I think that it's true that we're facing this anxiety about putting aside our particular talents or putting them to the service. In a way, I'm not sure that we can totally justify but it doesn't come like we have to make more time in order to I would say even in, indulge our art I've certainly been doing that the last few few years definitely to, to be a, a 
of service, you know, it's important. And, and I know that you're doing that as well. Although, you know, I don't find it surprising that novelists or humanities scholars may have insights into terraforming. And just for those who don't know, do you mean by terraforming geoengineering or is this another more specific aspect of that? So this issue that we co-edited has a variety of different um, approaches. Geoengineering is, is related to terraforming, but terraforming is, is a concept more than a set of actions. And it raises all kinds of questions from practical ones, but also very speculative ones about what would it mean to form an earth on earth? Yeah, or, or underground, or however. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, of course, novelists uh, traditionally have been d- speculating for years. And no, it doesn't surprise me because to write or even like I know from painting as well, you know, to create a, a face, I have to know how the bones and how the muscle, you have to know all these things mm-hmm. and, uh, just on an intuitive level. And novelists, you know, it's they call it world building. They sometimes invent mm-hmm. whole languages and 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 governments and and whole social systems so I think it's really important because we do have to think through what we're doing before we do them I don't want to get off into another tangent but we're just you know we're drawing back troops now uh, and and if we had thought in advance you know the consequences if we'd applied like this long-term thinking that you know, even novelists have, we could have speculated on some of those outcomes. So it, it is very interesting. And going back to the other question, which I thought was fascinating, Sophia had mentioned about how different approaches towards sustainability, how people approach it with, from different languages. And I guess that we're, you know, speaking from, I mean, I'm in Paris, and we're talking about, you know, romance languages or Italian. And I feel that's very much, it's very much under the umbrella of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. But if I knew more about the languages of other, you know, indigenous people, or even how they think about Mm -hmm. the collective and how their pronouns and grammar work, I'm Mm -hmm. sure it would change my perspective. It's interesting how language is invisible, but Mm -hmm. it's a real structure. It really changes everything. I remember there was one course I took in university that's always stuck with me when it comes to language and how it shapes our world is in the Hopi language of Western America. The way time is talked about is a cycle. I know you're mentioning deep time and how in English we talk about time as linear. But in this language, essentially, people imagine time as cyclical versus linear. And I think that has a lot of weight when we're talking about climate change and how it almost feels like if time is linear anything we do now kind of drops off and isn't important like we're going to keep going forward no matter what we do but if it's cyclical then what we do now we're going it's going to catch back up to us later thinking about time and thinking about language there is a a science fiction film called arrival i i don't know if you saw this because Mm -hmm. unusually it deals, I was wondering what you thought about it because it deals with language where sci-fi extraterrestrial films don't usually. I don't mean to sound like a cranky old lady, but I find it has this element of time travel in it, you know, and I, I really don't like time travel, even though it shows up on my Netflix algorithm sometimes, you know, I really hate it. And I really hate it because I find it very, um, it's a device to 
in a sense, it's bad faith, you know, because you can always just move something into the past or into the future if you don't want to deal with it right now. So there's a part of me that does have a practical side, which is we have to decarbonize the world really quickly. And we don't have much time to do it. And it's going to involve forms of geoengineering if we're really going to do it and radical shifts to non-fossil energy systems and also other massive changes, which may be brought about by disasters. So I, I get annoyed by films that, that solve narrative problems by time travel. So I do agree that the, the sort of anthropological linguistic elements of the film were quite interesting. I, I did like that part of it, but they, those were canceled out for me by the and, and you can still argue that what Amy Adams' character was doing was, in essence, assimilating these aliens to English, you know, North American English. So you could argue, I think you, you could make a critique of the film that it was really about assimilating to us. And there was no mention of, you know, what we have done wrong. There was no mention of, say, capitalism as a system that failed. And then you just move on to other time frames and you just completely erase this question of agency and, and of, of change. So, yes, I found it somewhat annoying in that regard. As I said, that's coming from the cranky old lady. Oh, I, I yeah, I think that time travel... It, you know, it always goes in this loop or maybe an inevitability or maybe there's a solution you can find. It's uh, an impossibility. But I was fascinated in the language because I thought about when Sophia mentioned this circularity, a circular notion of time and, and the image for those who haven't seen the film is that language is is a circle. It's like it's like a, a giant pictogram, but with infinite complexity and like little offshoots. And so it's completely different from what I understand language or that linear time. And it was fascinating to me. I, I remember because I also write and some people who are more visually orientated don't think that way as their primary way of communicating. I remember once my mother asked me about when you're working on a novel, uh, what do you do? Do you put all the pages on the floor? <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you like, so her th- idea is almost like this, that you would see everything at once. But, you know, narrative doesn't work exactly like that. But it's this idea that it could all be connected. And, and then I feel that that is sort of beautiful, uh, it, that you could encapsulate everything almost in the moment. And uh so it made me imagine many things, but I agree. There's always going to be problems, I think, with almost any science fiction because uh, it's an imagined world. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do like to think about those things. And so you've been thinking a lot about surfaces and subsurfaces, and you were talking about the necessity for geoengineering. And it, it does seem like our we're not going to catch up Although I've heard, I have to say, I've been become so hopeful by listening from people from parliamentarians to others who like really do live a hundred percent sustainable lifestyles. You know, mm-hmm. who have like clear roadmaps. If we would just listen, so that's made me hopeful. But it seems like there has to be some form of at least advanced carbon capture. What are some of those? You know, practical semi-futuristic or what solutions have come across your radar that you're like, let's do this. 
Well, I, I would like to mention a, a project I did. I've, I've collaborated with an artist, Hans Bauman, and we've done a number of projects together around climate change and energy. And we did something called 138,462 Carbon Pyramids. And it's on Strelka magazine, which is an interesting project out of Russia. In that, uh, Hans and I address a lot of these, these issues. And then there's Holly Buck, who's a writer who is a sort of creative nonfiction writer and scholar who's um, written a book called After Geoengineering that people might want to read, which is very interesting as well. My interest in geoengineering goes back to at least the COP of 2015, if not earlier. I'm interested in the ethics of it and the question of it, what it would mean to take something out of the atmosphere, which is invisible, and put it back in the ground, in a sense, from sort of from where it came. So I'm interested in a philosophical problem, a temporal problem. On the practical side, though, it seems like direct air capture, the technology exists, it can be done. And now the question is to think, how quickly could it be scaled up? And could it be done in a way that is communitarian and democratic rather than just purely technocratic? Could communities or individuals take responsibility for capturing a certain amount of carbon out of the atmosphere? And what could they do with it? Burying it or um, injecting it into rocks, so it will fuse with rocks, or burying it into empty um, aquifers or empty spaces in the ground. So let's just say technically the technology exists, I mean, but, but how could we scale it up in a way that's democratic and in a way that could possibly build communities of people, resilient people working together? Is there any way to think about that beyond just sort of let's hope that the technocrats and, and governments will take responsibility for this or the other thing which is let's just wait for some kind of a carbon tax and then it will become financially viable for the private sector to take care of it so these are some of the things i'm interested in of course it's daunting but it's still as we say at the end of our carbon pyramid project it's impossible, and yet it has to happen. Another one of these paradoxes. I think that there have, and I think you've seen that there is a lot of really promising and, you know, developed technologies for doing that carbon capture. It's not as, there's some other geoengineering that's controversial, I would say, but the carbon capture, I think there's, you know, you can inject it into the soil or into the concrete. I worried about like going on the concrete and whether that would release it again. But in terms of scrubbing out the emissions and making them clean in terms of um, airplane travel, even, and that can be run on biofuels. So there's a lot of that. I feel that, that that's completely uncontroversial. And I just want us to get doing it as quickly as possible and stop subsidizing the other end exactly. of it. Yeah, it's so important. Exactly. Sophia, you had another question on that note about... Yes, everything we're talking about with all of the technology that we have that we can use to mitigate this impending crisis, the thing that always strikes me is the, the level of cooperation necessary globally. And when you have public or political actors who are outright not cooperating, you could say, and I feel like this relates to your 1995 book, 
bodily regimes, Italian advertising <laughs> under fascism, because you have the public and the private sector, both of which can use their use their powers for evil, you could say. So how has your perspective changed on, I don't want to say all of this, but how has your perspective <laughs> changed since writing this book? We could spend another hour talking about neo-fascism or fascism with a capital F or small f. I think we've seen that the most interesting experiments in addressing emissions and climate change have come from small groups, maybe NGOs, communities. I feel as if the IPCC is all we have and it's very flawed, but it is all we have and I think we need to go all in on it. But I don't really think that electoral politics in any country are really the appropriate way, unfortunately, to address climate change. I mean, they're incremental changes, you know, from everything I've heard, for example, Obama did a lot behind the scenes, but it wasn't really publicized. Climate change was a big priority for him, and perhaps it is for Biden too, but electoral politics are really limited in, in what they can do. As is academia, I, this is not really an answer to your question, but I'm not sure any of these institutions can really work fast enough or be nimble enough to address what we're facing. And yet, you can't just give up, or I, I don't feel like I can. So I find, for example, when I see youth movements like Extinction Rebellion Group or the Sunrise Movement or other young people who are activists, I really support what they're doing because I do think they have creative ideas and they're putting their bodies and themselves out there. And we could all argue about whether activism works or not, and there's plenty of ways in which it makes the people doing it feel better and doesn't really affect social change. But I think their creativity is admirable and their knowledge of what's possible is amazing. For example, some of these youth groups are thinking about, you know, with the help of, of more experienced people, how tort law, how the courts could be used to penalize or somehow slow down the oil companies from their future production and from future drilling. That's really amazing to me. So that's where I, I see some kind of um, hope for, for the future. They have understood a, a certain creative use of public space, and I, I admire that. Yes, certainly. And they've been able to look at what happened, not, you know, a few months ago in Germany, in terms of bringing the High Court of Germany to recognize the fact, which already Germany is very progressive, but to recognize the fact that climate security is a basic human right. And that was just really young people, yeah. you know, pushing that. We're seeing that in bold moves under the Biden administration, making up for things. So we're hopeful about that too. And 
I think, yes, it's not just that they would have all the answers, but if you make enough noise, then it is, uh, they're consumers. And we know that the youth market is important too. And so, as you said, as you think about the, the future and this, the kind of world we're leaving the next generation and, and also for you, the importance of humanities and the arts and the future of education, what are some things that have important lessons that uh, for you in your career path and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I, I think I would learn more from them than vice versa, because I think the very model of inheritance, you know, that we have to leave um, a better world for our children and what is the legacy we're leaving them? I mean, it could be argued that that very model, that very mode of thought and even a certain mode of thought of intergenerational fairness is tied to a very sort of patriarchal and capitalist mode of inheritance and property and ownership. So I would not feel comfortable saying, here's what I want to leave the future. I would actually say that the future should speak to us and we should be able to listen somehow to different kinds of futures and we should be open to other modes Because this idea that you can mobilize people, for example, in my university, we heard that the the trustees, which are by nature a very conservative body, they have a fiduciary relationship to the, the future of the university, that they are moved by the idea that they care about their grandchildren. They want to leave a better world for their grandchildren. So, I mean, I'm arguing, and again, this is very polemical, but I'm arguing that 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 very mode of thinking is part and parcel of a kind of mode of thought that we should probably get out of. And it's, it's not going to lead to action that is radical enough. And it's going to lead to a kind of incremental change or a superficial change that is not adequate to what we're facing now. So let's think in a much more radical way and let's listen to other ideas rather than this idea of legacy. And I do think it would be, you know, it would be great if people can continue to study the humanities because we need smart people and the humanities are just, the humanistic disciplines are disciplines that really make us think without necessarily an immediate reward or end. So I would say that if we want to save the world, that would be why, so that we can continue to think. At the same time, I think perhaps the university and our our current modes of thought need to be turned upside down, at least for a while until we can decarbonize the world very quickly. Well, I like the the boldness of your message and, uh, yeah, of of putting aside, yeah, of course, our our particular discipline to just think about the future of our planet and and future generations. And I've always been fond of that expression, you are the miracle. So whatever we can do to help enable the brilliance of the next generation. But of course, you have incredible uh, wealth of knowledge and experience to pass on and you have been passing on. So you shouldn't underestimate that because we, we learn from it. And so thank you, Professor Karen Pincus, for your explorations of literature and the arts and your thoughtful analyses of fuel, energy, epistemological questions of the subsurface and sustainable futures. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your dedication to the environment, humanities and literature and for adding your voice to the creative process.
One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Sophia Luongo, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Sophia Luongo. Digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.